At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Amen. We've not had the opportunity to meet. My name is Kurt McDonald. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church. And this morning, it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. In the year 1415, a man named John Huss was burned at the stake in Germany. On the way to his execution, He was made to wear a paper hat, and the paper hat had written on it, leader of a heretical movement, that's what the hat said. So what was this uh, heretical doctrine that he had been preaching? Well, he preached that the Bible was the final and ultimate authority, not counsels of men. And for this, they burned him at the stake. Arriving at his place of execution, he was asked by an official if he would like to recant his views. And here's what Huss replied. Huss said, in, listen, he was bound at the stake and they had stacked wood up to his chest and they asked him to recant. And here is what John Huss said. God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought or preached except with one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins, and today I will gladly die. After that, the fire was lit, and as the flames engulfed him, John Huss began to sing in Latin a Christian chant. Here's the Christian chant that he sang, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. Christian history is filled with people just like this. As a matter of fact, all of Jesus' apostles died for the cause of Christ. They were martyred and killed, all except for one, that being John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he was boiled alive and then exiled. There, there are story after story of person who willingly went to their death for the cause of Christ in the face of curse God or die, they choose death. There, there's, it, it, Christian history is littered with person after person who would not bow to another. God. Christians were persecuted under the Emperor Nero. Christians were killed and persecuted under the Emperor Diocletian. And over the centuries, people have willingly given their lives for the cause of Christ. And the question is, what causes these believers to pay such a price? What, what in their right mind, why wouldn't they just in their heart continue to love Jesus and say whatever the, the people who were persecuting them wanted them to say? What would cause them to literally give their life for Jesus? What would cause you to literally give their life for Jesus? What empowered them? Here it is. Here's what empowered these people to do what they did. It was their doctrine of life and their doctrine of death. That's what empowered them to, to do such a thing. It's what they believed this life was about, and it's what they believed about the life that is to come. Namely, they believe that this life is to be lived for Christ, for the building of his kingdom, and that death is not the end, but a doorway into eternity. And so if you're, if you're taking notes, here's what Christians believe. Christians believe in a future where there is no death. <laughs> that, that's what the Bible teaches. Christians believe in a future where there is no death, so we can gladly live and if need be die for the cause of Christ. You know, this is what 
Jesus is asking us to do, right? This is what Jesus requires of a Christian, that is to, to live for him. Life is for him, and death is to be with him. Life is for him, and death is to be with him. You see, we are not our own. We are bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. And so life is for him, and death is to be with him. Now, let's compare that with a secular worldview. Just as we are culture's doctrine of life and death. Did you know our culture has a doctrine of life and death? Just as we as professing Christians, we have a doctrine of life and death. Our culture also has a doctrine of life and death. Let me just, let me just share with you this quote from a man named Bill Maher. If you don't know who Bill Maher is, he is a modern political commentator. He's a comedian. He's a TV show host. And he's an outspoken atheist and against all things religious. Here is what Bill Maher has to say. And again, he, I want you to hear the doctrine, his doctrine of life and death here in this statement. Here it is. A quote from Bill Maher, he says, At the end of the day, if you're not religious, which I'm not, it's all about killing time until you die. Be as good of a person as you can and kill time until you die. You see, whether or not most people would say it or not, that's certainly how many people live. That's certainly how many people live. For, for most people, their life's goal is to avoid death. They don't want anything to do with death. They don't want to talk about death. They don't want to look at death. They don't want to think about it, which is why many people live like death is not coming for them, which it certainly is. See, physical death shows us that something isn't right. That, that's that feeling you get in your soul when, when someone you love passes away and your soul says, this isn't, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And the reality is it's not. It's not the way. The the reality is because sin entered into the world, there is now death. This is why Genesis 3.19 says this. You you know what's happening here in this text in in Genesis. The sin has entered into the world through Adam and Eve. And then God pronounces this curse. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust into dust you shall return. So death is then the consequence of humanity's sin. You see, we are powerless against death. There is a predestined day for your death. It is coming for you. It is unavoidable and you cannot stop it. It is impossible for us to stop drawing closer and closer to the day of our death. So be encouraged this morning. I have a sermon for you on death. But church family, I've got some good news for you. I'm going to go ahead and just tell you the whole sermon right here. You ready? Here we go. Here's the whole sermon. Jesus secures a future where there is no death. Jesus, he secures it. He secures it with his perfect life. He he secures it with a substitutionary death. He secures it with his victorious resurrection. He secures this future for us where there is no more death. And so church family, (laughs) physical death may come for us if Jesus does not return. One of those two things are going to happen. Jesus is going to return and we won't see physical death or we will experience physical death and then we will be with him. But make no mistake, there there does not have to be spiritual death for us. 
That, that is this future which he secures for us. You see, when we die physically, our soul goes to be with him where he is in paradise. You remember what he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So when we die, our soul goes to be with him in paradise. And there is coming a great victorious day when he will return and the, and the clouds will be parted and the trumpet will sound and he will reunite our souls with resurrection, perfect bodies, and we will be with him forever. He has secured that future for us where there will be no more death from that point on forever with him in resurrection bodies. He has secured that for us. He secured that for us. So what that means for us today, church family, is that we do not live in fear. <laughs> we, we live with resurrection hope. E even in the face of death, we live with resurrection hope. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't mourn death. Didn't Jesus weep? As his friend Lazarus died, it doesn't mean that we don't mourn death, but we mourn differently than the world. It means that we don't live pointless lives. We have meaningful lives because we have an eternal soul. <laughs> we, we can live meaningful lives, meaning as you love and serve your spouse, you're building the kingdom of God. As you teach your children about who Jesus is, you're building the kingdom of God. It, it has eternal consequences. It has eternal significance. As you serve your local church, as, as, we, as we pour ourselves into one another, this has eternal significance, eternal consequence, which means our lives have meaning and purpose because Jesus has secured a future where there is no death. And so, church family, he, he defeated death for us. So now... Now we live for him. He defeated death for us. So now we live for him. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. The Apostle Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If, if you were here with us when we preached the book of Corinthians, you would know that in chapter 15, what Paul says there, he, he proves that Jesus has risen from the dead by saying over five hundred people at once saw the risen Christ. So now he's saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, they died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. Praise him this morning. Praise him this morning. Okay, so in our text, we're going to see a story about a centurion, and he has a servant, and his servant is near death. And then we're going to see this story where there's a widow, and, and her son has died. And, and Jesus works these miracles. But church family, the, the point isn't that just those people were raised to life, because those people aren't here with us on earth anymore. That those people eventually died again, so that's not the point. The point is Jesus is pointing us to the future of his coming kingdom where he has secured a place where there will be no more death. Th these miracles are a picture into the future. He's pointing us to what his kingdom is going to be like. Yeah. That's what these stories are all about. So here's our outline for today. Are y'all with me? Yeah. Okay, first, the servant near death. Second, the unworthy centurion. Third, the Lord with authority. The Lord with authority. Fourth, the Lord with compassion. And lastly, the amazed crowd. First, the servant near death in verses 1 to 5. I encourage you to get this text out in front of you and follow along with me as we, as we go through it 
Luke chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is a town in the north of Palestine, right there on the, the Sea of Galilee. You know, he's been, he's been preaching this sermon. We, we looked at the sermon that he preached, the sermon on the plain. It is referred to in chapter 6, and now he has done being out on the plain and preaching his sermon, and now he's entering into this town. Look at verse 2. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. We meet this centurion. He's a commander of a hundred Roman troops, hence the name centurion. Um, Many of these centurions were actually not married because of their occupation. They they weren't married, and so um, they were usually men of affluence, men of wealth, and so they had many servants, and and these servants would essentially become like their family uh, because they didn't really have one. I think it's interesting. It begins to show us a little bit about who this centurion is because instead of just discarding this servant, which he totally could have, he owned, he could have, oh, he's sick, get rid of him, find me another one. This centurion has the heart to seek help for his servant. Look at verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he, I just want to stop that he heard, who told the centurion about Jesus? <laughs> did, did he just hear because of his reputation, because of all the miracles that, that had been happening? Or was this maybe another servant? This is total speculation, by the way. Um, maybe another servant in his house had actually come to faith in Christ and tells him, about this Jesus. In any event, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, this is very strange. This is very, very strange, church family. Why in the world are pious Jews running an errand for a pagan Gentile Roman soldier? He's the occupying force in Israel, why are they running an errand for him? This is very strange. It's very strange that they would do Jesus. They discover why they would do that in verses 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, interestingly enough, you can go to Capernaum to this day, and there is a synagogue there. Now, the synagogue has been rebuilt, but listen, the foundation is still there, and you can see the foundation that uh, the synagogue was set on that apparently this man, that we don't know his name, but he paid for it. It's still there today. Now, the reason that they believe that he is so worthy is because apparently he paid for the synagogue. Now, That's not a strange thing. Again, he is a centurion. Um, He he is the occupying force in that area. So him kind of paying for a synagogue would kind of be a good and smart idea if you're trying to control the population, right? Give them a little something that they want. But this man, again, is shown to be a little bit different because not only did he just pay for the synagogue as to placate them, but it says that he loves the nation. He loved the nation. Now, does his love for the nation and his charitable donation make him worthy? <laughs> do you see what they say there? He is worthy for you to do this. He's, he's worthy of your blessing, Jesus, because why? Well, because he's so generous and he absolutely loves our nation. But again, who is worthy of the blessings of God when compared to the righteous requirements of God's law? Well, Christ alone is the one who is worthy, not this 
not this centurion. You see, here's the big problem with these Jewish leaders. The problem is they are not asking Jesus to do this because he is merciful to sinners. That's why they, they, they should have said something like, Lord Jesus, we know that you are merciful to sinners, so do this. Instead, they are putting in front of Jesus uh, this centurion's good work and good merit, hoping for the blessing. If you're, if you're taking notes, Jesus secures us a future without death, not based on anything that we have done, but on the redemptive work that he has done. You see, the, the redemptive work of Jesus is reversing what happened in the garden. This is all a part of the redemptive arc of history to where humans fell in the garden and that sin pervaded in us all and it brought death to us all. But Jesus in his redemptive work is doing this. He's reversing what happened there. He's reversing what happened in that garden, which is why he sweats blood in his garden. And in the future, he invites us into the garden of heaven forever. And it's not based on anything that we have done. It's based solely on his work alone. Second, we see the unworthy centurion in verses 6 and 7. And Jesus went with them. Also, very, very shocking. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go to a centurion's house. I'll bless his, Jesus is willing to go. You, I mean, you, you've got to see the significance. This is yet Luke again pointing out Jesus's purposes in inviting in not just the Israelites, but inviting in the nations of welcoming in people of all color, of all race, of all creed. He says, the door is flung open wide. Grace is available for you no matter your inner in color. No matter your ethnicity, no matter your background, Jesus is willing to enter into the home of, of this centurion. Now, <clears throat> something very interesting happened in the heart of this centurion between the time he sends the Jewish elders and the time that Jesus says that he's willing to come. It's very strange. It's very strange what's, what's happening here because he, he then sends friends to tell him not to come. Like, what do you want me to do here, centurion? Am I, am I coming or going? What, what, what's going on here? So what, what changed in the heart of this centurion? Again, it is, it is this pastor's opinion that someone has told this centurion not that Jesus is just a healer, but that he's Messiah and Lord and that he's holy and good and that he's the Savior. Which is why what happens in the heart of this centurion in between the time he sends the elders and the time Jesus begins to make his way to him is he has conviction in his heart. Look at it. When he was not far from the house, the centurion <clears throat> sent friends saying, Lord, do under, trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Do you see what he called him? Do you see what this Roman centurion, the occupying force, calls a working class peasant rabbi, Lord? <laughs> it's astonishing. Look right at it. Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. So what is so interesting is that while the Jewish leaders said that he is worthy, this centurion has a higher spiritual IQ and realizes that he's not worthy. He sees who Jesus is, and in light of Jesus, he sees who he is. And he realizes that he is not worthy. He continues on in his message, 
Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, listen to this, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion believes that Jesus has the authority to speak and death itself will obey the very word of God. It is incredible, the faith of this centurion. He, he just says, he, he's getting at this idea of the authority of Christ, that, that Jesus, when he speaks, it happens, period, paragraph. Thirdly, let's look more into the authority of the Lord, the Lord with authority, verse 8. The centurion, through the message sent by his friend, says this, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Do you see here what the centurion is communicating to Jesus? The centurion, through his friends, is communicating this. Because of who I am, I'm a, a man of authority. By virtue of being a centurion, when I tell my soldiers to get up and go, they get up and go. Because I'm a centurion, I'm in charge. I have that kind of authority. And he's communicating this to Christ because what he is also saying is that by virtue of Christ's authority, he has authority over death and can merely speak the word and his servant will be healed. That's the comparison that he is, he is making here. He is saying, I'm a man of authority over men, but because of who you are, you have authority over death. You see, the centurion's authority assured outcomes among his men in the same way Jesus' authority assures outcomes even over death. Even over death. Just as a side note, this is extra. If you're taking notes, if Jesus has authority over all, including death, how should this affect our worried and anxious hearts? How should it, <laughs> right? It, it should create in us a sense of peace. It should create in us a sense of rest. It should create in us a sense of joy and contentment, knowing that he has authority overall, even over death. But can I be honest with you? There, there are many days and many times I do not find that in my own heart. Why is that? Why? I mean, come on, come on, church family. We believe that Jesus has authority over all. We believe that Jesus has authority even over death. And what that should do in our hearts is create peace and joy and contentment. And it should vanquish anxiety, should it not? Why doesn't that happen in our hearts? Well, here's three main reasons. I told you this was extra. Here's three main reasons why we continue to struggle with worry and anxiety. The first one is this. We do not rehearse biblical truths in our mind. We, we get so consumed by the situation. We get so consumed by the anxiety and our focus is there instead of our focus being on the word of God and reminding ourselves, preaching the gospel to ourselves, rehearsing biblical and gospel truths to ourselves that even in the midst of this situation, God, I know that you're gonna use it for my good and for your glory. Bless your name, oh God. Instead, our focus is deadlocked on the situation. That's the, that's the first reason we don't experience that kind of thing. The, the second reason is that we have not fastened ourselves to a community of people who believe those kind of truths. We, we prefer to sit on the outside. We prefer to sit on the outskirts. We, we may show up on a Sunday. We might, you know, smile and shake somebody's hand, but really getting in and doing life together, ooh, that's too scary. And so when, 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 the, when the storm comes, when pain enters into our life, we are, we are dealing with that on our own. And we're, so we're focused in on the problem instead of being focused in on the word of God. And we don't have anybody to speak life into us, 
because we've not fastened ourselves to a community of people who believe these type of biblical truths. And the third reason is, is this. We've not asked the Lord for help. We've simply not asked the Lord for help. That, that's why we're not experienced that sense of joy and peace, knowing that he is, he is sovereign over all, including death. We should be experiencing that joy and peace, but we've not asked for the Lord. Again, we're too focused on our own problems and feeling alone because we're not fastened to a community. And so when that time comes, instead of crying out to the Lord, God, I'm feeling just overwhelmed with pain and anxiety over this situation. I'm, I'm feeling in over my head, God, help me. Instead, we're too focused on the problem. I told you that was extra. I'm going to move on. Verse 9. Y'all don't want me to preach like that. Here we go. Verse 9 says this. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Very, very few times in the scriptures do you see Jesus marveling. Usually it's the people marveling at Jesus. It's never Jesus marveling at people. But here we have Jesus marveling because this man is one of the least likely men to actually have faith. Again, a pagan Roman centurion is very unlikely for him to have faith, yet he has faith. Now, again, I just want to keep pointing us back to this. What kind of faith is this? It's certainly faith that Jesus can heal, but is it more? Is it a faith that Jesus is the Savior? Do you remember the prophetic word that came about Jesus from Simeon when Jesus was presented in the temple? If you don't remember, I'll just, I'll just remind you. We looked at it several, several, several weeks ago. Luke chapter 2, verse 32. Here's what Simeon has to say about Jesus. He says this, that he will be a light of revelation to the who? To the Gentiles for glory to your people of Israel. And so be glad today that Jesus has welcomed in us Gentiles. Be glad today that Jesus cancels death for people of all nationalities and all ethnic groups. Look at verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What's so interesting is this, this amazing miracle occurs, and, and it's covered in just a few words there at the end of verse 10. Out of all 10 verses about bringing this boy back from the brink of death, bringing this servant back from the brink of death, it, verse 10 says, and they found the servant well. <laughs> now, if you look at it, what we see here is that what this man believes is that all Jesus has to do is speak a word and the servant is well, but look at verse 10. And when they returned to the house, they found the servant well. Or let's even back up and, and look at verse 9 to see, oh, nope, no word there. Jesus doesn't even speak a word in this text. He just, by his will, heals the servant. <laughs> That's how powerful Jesus is. He can heal with a word, or he doesn't even have to use a word. Just by his own will, this servant is healed. So here's what I want you to see out of this story with Jesus and the encounter with the centurion and the healing of his servant. Here it is. Jesus has the authority to secure a future for us where there is God. By virtue, he has the authority to do so. 
But by virtue of being the son of God, by virtue of being the the second person in the Trinity, by virtue of creating the universe through him, through his word, by that virtue, he has the authority to secure for us a future where there is no death. So don't miss the main point. The main point is not that Jesus saved this servant from death. Jesus is pointing us to the fact that he has the authority to save us from death, and he holds that same authority in our lives. So by his death and his resurrection, he secures us a future in heaven, and he has the authority to do so. Amen? Fourthly, we'll see this, the Lord with compassion. The Lord with compassion. Verse 11 says this, soon afterward, the reason Luke says that, he's connecting these two stories together about Jesus' authority over death, Jesus' power over death. Soon afterward, He went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Nain is about 25 miles south of Capernaum, where they were. It's a very small town. It's still there today. Verse 12, and as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. I want you to get this picture in your mind as Jesus enters into this small town. There, there's this large crowd following him, and they're being met by another large crowd. I, I want you to hear it and see it. In, in those days and times, even the poorest of the poor in Israel would still hire mourners, professional mourners who would wail and cry and there would, there would be uh, uh, flutes that would play and they would all march together in this funeral procession and there Jesus enters in and steps into this whole situation. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Do you see the scene in your mind where Jesus' eyes meets the eyes of this grieving mother, and his heart is then filled with compassion. He is going to heal this, this boy, and, and no one asked him to do it. He's, he's doing all that. He's motivated. Jesus is motivated by his compassion. And so, church family, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're facing today. Maybe, maybe you're like this woman. Maybe you're dealing with the loss of a child, a miscarriage, the loss of of a spouse or a family member, Jesus has compassion for you today. He cares. He cares for you. Maybe maybe your spouse is alive, but you still feel alone like, like this widow does. Jesus has compassion for you. Maybe your family member, a mother, a brother, uh, a sister, maybe they didn't die, but the divide, the relational divide is so deep, it feels like a death. Well, Jesus has compassion for you today. He loves you. He understands. He also, this Lord is not only powerful over death, he also has compassion with us when we deal with death. He has compassion. If you're taking notes, Jesus does not only have the authority to intervene in the everyday mess of our lives, he has the compassion to do it. Don't you want that kind of, I want the kind of savior that has authority. Amen? That that when he wills something, it will be done. That is the kind of Savior that we need. That's the kind of Savior that we want. But we also want a Savior who has great compassion for us. And this great Savior does. He has authority and, and he has 
compassion. So I want to speak today to those who feel left out by God. You ever felt left out by God? God's blessing everybody. Everybody else's life is going great, but not yours. You feel, feel left out by God. I want to speak to those today who feel abandoned, who feel excluded. I want to speak to those who feel like God is indifferent to you and your pain and your experiences. I want you to know that you may feel that way, but your feelings are lying to you. God cares. Look at what he says to her. And he said to her, I'm still in verse 13, and he said to her, do not weep. Now again, is weeping appropriate at a funeral? Well, it certainly is. Which is, which is interesting that he would say to her, do not weep. The reason that he says to her, do not weep, is because he knows what he's about to do. Do you remember his sermon from chapter 6? Do you remember what he said about those who will weep and mourn? Do you remember what he says? He just got done preaching the sermon. He said, those who will weep and mourn, I will turn that into laughter. And so he says to her, do not, do not weep. Fifthly, and last point in our outline, the amazed crowd. Look at it in verses 14 and 15. Then he came up and he touched the beer. Now, now this is a, a platform, uh, usually a, a plank of wood that they would use to, to carry the body or to carry a coffin. Uh, here in first century Palestine, they would sometimes just wrap the body in linen and spices. Other times they would put it in a coffin, but either way, how they would transport the body from the home to the burial site would be on a plank of wood, and, and that's, that's what these men are carrying and so Jesus then, look at it, then he came up and he, he touched it. What does that mean for a first century Jewish man to put his hands on something that is dead? Well, now, now by, by Jewish law, he is ceremonially unclean for seven days. But listen here, church family, Jesus has the power. He is so powerful that, that his cleansing touch has the power to push out uncleanness. So, so today, church, if you are feeling unclean, the, the touch of Jesus is powerful enough to push out your uncleanness. So he was not defiled by touching this dead man. As a matter of fact, he brought life where there is death. And so there are areas in your life to where you feel like there is nothing but death. All I see is death. All I feel is death in my marriage and my finance. This is what I'm experiencing. It is all death. But Jesus has resurrection power. And he can bring healing and hope to your life. With, with his touch, he can do that. And the bearers stood still. <laughs> Just imagine the, the face of Jesus, his, his posture as he looks at this woman and says to her, do not weep. And he, he reaches up his hand and, and those guys are like, don't move, bro, whatever you do. He reaches up and he, he touches it. And listen to, what, listen to what he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Now, I wish, I wish it would have recorded what he says. We don't, we don't know what the dead man says. I want to know, but he sits up and just starts talking. He's like, you know, where am I? Who are these people? You know, he's looking over like, Larry, you're here. You hated my guts when I was alive. What are you doing at my funeral? We don't, we don't know what he says, but he sits up and begins to speak as evidence that he is alive because speaking is not something that dead men do. And so, so when, when he sits up, he begins 
to speak. So again, Luke is including his speaking as evidence that he really is alive. And look at this. This is so compassionate. Look at the thing that it says next. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, why does it say that? Didn't, didn't he already belong to his mother's in the room, you know? <laughs> didn't, he, didn't he already belong to his mother? Now, why would it say that? Well, this is pointing us back, church family, if you know your Old Testament, this is pointing us back to 1 Kings 17, 23, where there is another widow who has lost her son, and the prophet Elijah comes, and he raises her son back to life. And the exact same phrase is used there. It says that Elijah gave the son back to the mother, just like it says here of Jesus, because Jesus is the new and greater Elijah. And what is so interesting about this whole parable, or about this whole section of text, is that, again, it's not about, the focus is not Jesus raising this boy back from the dead. The focus is on this grieving widow. And the focus is on once he is raised back to life, he gives the son back to the mother. Look at verse 16. I'm almost done. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people today. And this report about him spread throughout all of Judea and the surrounding counties. Again, let's draw it down to the, this, the main point of this little story here. Here it is. Jesus has the compassion to secure a future for us where there is no death. See, church family, certainly Jesus has the authority to secure a future for us where there is no death. Not only does he have the authority, he also has the compassion. He wants to do this for us. Do you know that about you? Jesus loves you so much that he does not want death to rule over you. He wants you. He has compassion for you. He wants you. He wants this, this thing that he has on offer to be yours. Do you believe that about yourself? It's true. It's absolutely true. Well, Church family, what are we to do with a very old story about a centurion and a servant and a widow and her son? What are, what are we to make of this as, as we have to leave out of here and, and live our own lives and figure out what, what all of this means? Here it is. I've got, I've got three, three things I want to say. Two of them are kind of the big idea, and then I'll summarize it finally in one, one final statement. What are we to do with a passage like this? Here it is. Live with resurrection hope in the face of death live with resurrection hope in the face of death. Again, church family, death is coming for us all. We cannot escape physical death unless the Lord returns. But we are not fearful or crushed or paralyzed by the thought of death. So when the doctor tells us it's cancer, when a loved one dies, we, we live with resurrection hope. Again, that does not mean that we don't weep because Jesus wept at the funeral of his friend Lazarus, but we, we sorrow differently. You see, the problem is this world says this life is all there is. This world's doctrine of life and death is going to tell you that before you die, before the end comes, do whatever it is that you need to do to feel fulfilled and, and to self-actualize and speak your own truth before you die. That's the message of the world, church family. But, but what is so interesting and so exciting and so fulfilling about the message of Christ is because what he says is that there is eternal life to come. That is not we're trying to live all the life that we can before the end comes. No, church family, we believe that there is life beyond death. And it is life with Christ. And so we can, we can give our lives to him. Death is not the end. 
Death is not the end, church family. And that should change how we live. We live for Christ. Secondly, live a meaningful life because we have an eternal soul. Do you remember that quote by Bill Maher I started out with? What a, what a horrible view of life. What a meaning. Kill time until you die. Try to be a good person, but kill time until you What a meaningless existence. What a meaningless existence. But church family, because he secures for us a future where there is no death, what it means is we now have the opportunity to live a life of meaning and purpose. So as we, as we pour out ourselves for our spouse, as, as we die to ourselves to serve our spouse, that has eternal implications. As, as we teach our children about Jesus and we raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that has eternal significance. As we give to our local church, that has eternal significance. As we serve the kids back in Gospel Kids, when you open up a door for somebody coming into church and you serve a cup of coffee, all of these things have eternal significance. And so our lives have true meaning and hope and purpose. This is an amazing message. This is the message of the gospel. It says we have lives of meaning and purpose because Jesus has secured for us a future where there is no death. Lastly, the, 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 the summation of how we apply this text to our life is this. Because he has defeated death for you, now live for him. Because he has defeated death for you, you're bought with a price. Your life is no longer yours because he defeated death for you. Now live for him. This is why, you guys know the quote, this is why the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ. And what is death? Gain. I mean, <laughs> he says, as long as I'm here in this body, I'm going to serve the Lord. That's to live as Christ. But he says, and when I die, I'm going to see him face to face, which will be gain because I'll get him. Right, the, the church family, the gain of heaven, the, please hear me, the gain of heaven is not that you get your own mansion by the lake by yourself. That's not heaven. That's not heaven, church family. Don't believe the lie. Oh, I'm a, I can't wait for my mansion. I'm going to be sitting up in my mansion all by myself, sipping cocktails. That's, that's not it at all. Jesus says that in my father's house, there are many rooms. Meaning this. The, the joy of heaven is that we get Jesus himself. The joy of heaven is that we get Jesus himself. So because he has defeated death for you, now live for him. Church family, Jesus has the authority to secure a future for us where there is no death. Not only does he have the authority, but he also has the compassion and he wants that for you. I'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul. He sums it up this way. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 18. I'm going to try not to pray. I'm just going to read it and be done. I'm not going to preach it, but I want to. Here's what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. Oh God, let us encourage one another this morning with these words that Jesus has secured a future for us where there is no death. And so now together as a collective church family, a forever family, we can now sacrifice our lives and ourselves for the glory of Christ because he has died for us, because he has defeated death for us. 
Oh God, let us encourage one another to live for him. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.